you'd like to uh, take up a Bible that you should find in one of the uh, seat pockets near you and turn to page uh, 710. I'm going to read the first of our readings today from Isaiah. That's on page 710. And I'm going to read chapter 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast... For it is precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be, To them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lives our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who was laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. 
as often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who ploughs for sowing plough continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has levelled its surface, does he not scatter dill? So come in and put in wheat and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and Emma as the border. For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sled, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Isaiah 33. Ah, you destroyer, you yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveller ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Here, you who are far off, what I have done and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid 
trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defence will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him, his water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Your cords hang loose, They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord of history, by your Spirit, would you open our ears to hear your voice in your word this morning. For King Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Uh, We're looking at Isaiah chapters 28 to 33 this morning. We have the first chapter and the last chapter read, and we keep dotting around through the chapters in between, so please keep your Bibles open. I'm looking forward to hearing lots of rustling pages as we dot back and forwards um, together. The question I want to ask this morning um, is this. How can we be sure that we are on the right side of history? We want to be on the right side of history, don't we? And we hold in high esteem, for example, uh, early campaigners for the abolition of slavery. They were criticised at the time, um, but they had devoted their lives to what was in fact right, and history now judges them to be right. And by contrast, you don't want to be the guy who bets the house on Betamax shares when it turns out that VHS is the future, was the future. Um, Ask your grandparents. Um, Worse, uh, what a tragedy to be an idealistic young member of any of a thousand religious cults down the years, betting their life on some charismatic leader 
whom subsequent history proves to be a charlatan. It is a tragedy to devote your life to a cause that proves in the long perspective of history uh, to have been futile, or worse, morally wrong. And Bible-believing Christians are told by the world around us today uh, that we are on the wrong side of history. In fact, I suspect that increasingly uh, we'll be portrayed as members of a radical religious cult. I'm not merely naive, but actively dangerous to society. Because society seems to be headed somewhere, um, in particular in its ethics in the area of sexuality and gender. And Bible-believing Christians aren't on board that train. Um, God's word tells us his good creation purposes in the area of sexuality and gender, and his purposes haven't changed. And the world tells us, therefore, that we will find ourselves on the wrong side of history. And nothing will undermine wholeheartedly living for Jesus like feeling that it might all be futile or worse, morally wrong. This is not the first time that God's people have found themselves feeling this way. We're going to see that those listening to Isaiah's preaching, collected in these chapters, thought that trusting God would put them on the wrong side of history. And we'll also see that the preaching of Isaiah should have given them and can give us the confidence needed to persevere with the Lord. How can we be sure that we are on the right side of history? Three parts to Isaiah's answer. Um, First of all, um, God announces history in advance. God announces history in advance. These chapters record Isaiah's preaching to the city of Jerusalem in the 20 years or so before 701 BC. And we'll return to the significance of that date. Um, In a moment, I want to show you a little video, um, about 45 seconds, that shows the political landscape over the preceding 200 years. This is what you're going to see. Here is the um, ancient Middle East uh, appearing on the screen any moment now. PowerPoint. Back to the PowerPoint. I want to give you a preview of the video before you watch the video. Perfect. Okay. Um, so this is after King David. This is um, after King Solomon. This is after the Jewish nation had split in two, uh, leaving the rebellious kingdom of Israel in the north, capital Samaria, and the kingdom of Judah in the south, capital Jerusalem. And Judah is right down there. There you go, in the very bottom right corner of the Mediterranean. Did you know it's so far down that coastline? I always forget that. And what I want you to watch when we play the video is the progress of Assyria, which is that bit there, the navy blue bit up there. Um, Capital of Assyria, uh, Nineveh, at least some of the time. And you might know Nineveh from the book of Jonah that we've been looking at in our evening services. You might remember that the Assyrians, the Ninevites, were evil um, by anyone's standards except possibly their own. Um, They were nose-choppingly, eye-gougingly genitalia-rippingly, skin-flayingly evil. So bear that in mind. Place yourself in Jerusalem, teeny tiny Judah, down the bottom there. And now let's see if we can play the video and watch Assyria. They'd had some influence before, but from about 750 BC onwards, Assyria were crushing it. 
Um, nothing like this had ever been seen before. It's worth bearing that in mind. Modest empires had come and gone, come and gone, but this was something new. Um, this was unprecedented, unstoppable. This was a tidal wave sweeping through the Middle East towards Jerusalem. Um, as the inhabitants of Jerusalem watched the 10 o'clock news night by night and saw the next town fall and the next town fall and the navy blue bit on the map get closer and closer, um, the evidence of their eyes gave them every reason to think that they were on the wrong side of history. But Jerusalem's God, the Lord, is the God of history. And he announces history in advance. In fact, through Isaiah, God had given his people a very specific promise. As punishment for his people's sin, he would send Assyria against them. Assyria would sweep through the region, would sweep into Judah, would sweep up to the very gates of Jerusalem, but then the Lord himself would fight for his people and send Assyria packing. He says it in chapter 8, the king of Assyria will sweep into Judah like the waters of a flooding river, but then they'll be shattered by Emmanuel, the God who is with his people. He says it in chapter 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. And Isaiah continues to insist throughout these chapters that that is still the plan. Assyria will get right to the, heart, to, to the gates of Jerusalem, but then they will scamper home with their tail between their legs. Um, chapters 28 to 33 are made up of six woes, um, six curses, one on Samaria, then four on Jerusalem, and then one on Assyria themselves. And through the section, we watch Assyria getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. In the first half of chapter 28, they're finishing off the capital of the northern city, the northern um, kingdom of Israel, Samaria, uh, also called Ephraim. Chapter 28, verse 1. Uh, 28 1. Ah, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, Samaria, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, Assyria, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts them down to the earth with his hand. Assyria are coming. They take Samaria um, in 722 BC as God had announced in advance. They are going to get to the gates of Jerusalem. Chapter 29, the second woe. Chapter 29, verse 1. Ah, woe to Ariel. Ariel, a name for Jerusalem. The city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. You have a tiny bit more time. But then, verse 2, yet I will distress Ariel. And there shall be moaning and lamentation. And she shall be to me like an Ariel. No one knows what that means. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise siege works against you and you'll be brought low from the earth you shall speak and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost and from the dust your, voice, your speech shall whisper. The Lord himself is judging his people by sending Assyria to besiege them. They're going to get to the gates. Verse five, but... The multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, 
you'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire and the multitude of the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her should be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold he's eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold he's drinking and awakes faint with his thirster not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. The Assyrian siege is going to be over so suddenly, completely, unexpectedly that Jerusalem will look back on it and say, did, did that really happen? Do we dream it? And God has announced history in advance. Assyria will flee because the Lord himself will fight for them. Chapter 30, verse 30. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. Or chapter 31, verse 8. 31, 8. The Assyrian shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. By the time we get to chapter 33, it is about to happen. Chapter 33, verse 10. thirty-three, ten. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Over the course of 40 years of preaching, um, as the Assyrian wave came crashing towards Jerusalem, Isaiah's message remained consistent. The Lord is sending Assyria against you because of your sin, but I'm telling you, they won't take Jerusalem. The Lord will send them packing. And spoiler alert, um, that is exactly what happened in 701 BC. The Assyrian army swaggered up to the gates of Jerusalem and camped outside. And when they woke up in the morning, and well, half of them didn't wake up in the morning because they were dead. And the other half uh, ran home in terror. Uh, Without a shot being fired, God saved Jerusalem. In the next few weeks, we'll see it happen in chapters 36 to 39 of Isaiah. Or if you have a spare day uh, to pop up to the British Museum... You can see it there. You can see this. And this is part of a a massive freeze that the Assyrians made as propaganda celebrating their defeat of a Judean town uh, called Lachish, um, which is also a French expression uh, meaning the quiche. Um, (laughs) Presumably. Um, Why no freeze celebrating the defeat of the more important city of Jerusalem, because it didn't happen. If Assyria's expansion was unprecedented, this partial reversal at the gates of Jerusalem in 701 BC was unimaginable. Now, you've seen the video. No nation's god was big enough to save them from Assyria except the God of Israel. I'm the God who controls history. 
The events of 701 BC were not only imaginable, they were dead cert for Isaiah and for the handful of people who listened to him because God had announced history in advance. Uh, you want to be confident of finding yourself on the right side of history? Well, don't bother listening to the 10 o'clock news and trying to guess where history might be going. Uh, try listening to the God who announces history in advance. He has a 100% track record of being right. Um, he has announced that when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're on his side, you'll be on the right side of history. But one of the things we find disconcerting, at least I do, is that while that seems so obvious to many of us, so many other people can't see it. I mean, indeed, it's theological scholars and religious leaders who are the very ones telling us, telling Bible-believing Christians, that we are on the wrong side of history when it comes to sexuality and gender, for example. How come very clever, very religious people so entirely fail to understand God's word. And well, Isaiah's second big point from these verses, that God conceals his word from scoffers. And I find this chilling, actually. And it is through God's word that he calls people to repent of their sins and to put their trust in him. And But people who mock his word, who belittle it, who think they know better than the Bible. The Bible calls such people scoffers. Well, the punishment that fits the crime for refusing to listen to God is that God will no longer speak in a way they can understand. In fact, Isaiah had been commissioned precisely to preach in order to conceal. In chapter 6, when he was called to be a prophet, God said to him, go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I mean, it's a horrifying commission to preach to people who are so determined to reject God that God's word will be the means by which he confirms them in their rejection. That is pretty much how Isaiah's preaching career worked out. We've seen his 40 years of preaching the specific promise that Assyria would get to the gates of Jerusalem, but no further. In response to that, Isaiah told his hearers simply to trust the Lord, to wait for his salvation, and to stand in the box until they were given the chocolate, if you were here last week. And did the people of Jerusalem respond like that to Isaiah's preaching? They did not. Instead, they kept making alliances with other nations to save them. In fact, first they tried buying off Assyria directly, but Assyria just took their money and then kept on attacking anyway. Not a very honourable people. Then Judah made an alliance with Egypt. Chapter 30, verse 1 Ah, woe, woe to you, stubborn children, declares the Lord, chapter 30, verse 1, um, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, 
that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. And by and large, Isaiah's hearers were stubborn in their refusal to listen to his message and to respond appropriately. Chapter 30, verse 9. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what's right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And the chilling thing is that when people scoff at the clear word of the Lord, who is holy and insists on holiness, and when they reject the clear word, he speaks in parables instead, so that those who will not hear him cannot hear him. I mean, chapter 28, we find that the religious leaders of Samaria are as drunken and immoral as everyone else in the city. Chapter 28, verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. Uh, the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. And here's what those religious leaders say about the true prophets like Isaiah. Chapter 28, verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, do you think you're talking to toddlers? And for it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And they're mocking the word of God. That's something like the kind of goo-goo-gaga that people say to babies. And tragically, when people mock God's clear word for being nonsense, it will become a nonsense to them. Chapter 28, verse 12, the Lord gave them a clear word, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, just rest in me, said God, yet they would not hear. Consequence, verse 13, and the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And then the chapter ends with a series of little agricultural parables. Um, chapter 28, verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. That's how Jesus introduces his parables, isn't it? Um, does he who plows for sowing plow continually uh, and so on? I think they're all little stories essentially making the point that judgment is coming, but that it won't last forever. Um, a more obscure way of making the same simple point that Isaiah has been making all along. And that is the kind of obscure speech that people who don't want to listen to God will find all the easier to write off as a lot of nonsense. Chapter 29, verse 10. The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that's sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. End of verse 14. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, 
and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. When people mock God's word for being childish nonsense, his perfectly just judgment on them is to speak in parables so that they won't understand. In all four Gospels, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, um, Isaiah's commission, to explain why he teaches in parables. We tend to assume that Jesus teaches in nice little stories to help us to understand what he's saying. And those stories do help those of us who want to understand what he's saying. And but the other side of the coin is that Jesus tells nice little stories so that those who don't care what he's saying will write them off as nice little stories. God conceals his word from those who scoff at it. And many of the sophisticated intellectual and religious elites do still mock God's word for being unsophisticated. They don't come much cleverer than Einstein. He wrote in a letter, and the Bible is a collection of honourable but still primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. Which is, it's the standard journey of the liberal Church of England bishop. The Bishop of Oxford said almost exactly this quite recently. Well, I used to think the Bible was straightforwardly true and reliable, but then I grew up. Haven't we as a society grown up? When I was training for ordination, I went to some lectures and by a world-renowned theology professor and I can still hear his sneering tone of voice as he pointed out some imagined contradiction between two bits of the Bible. Honestly, any five-year-old could have seen that there was a perfectly straightforward explanation of how those two bits of the Bible could be true at the same time. But this scholar with brains coming out of his ears, he was totally blind to the obvious solution because he had spent a lifetime uh, scoffing at God's word. He did not want God's word as the authority over his life. We're not talking here about those of us who have uh, questions about the Bible, bits of the Bible uh, we don't yet understand, or even bits of the Bible that right now we find uncomfortable. Um, there are, at the end of the day, only two basic attitudes we can take to God's word. And we can sit under it, recognising it as God's authoritative word, I'm deciding ahead of time that where I find that my thoughts aren't the same as God's thoughts, it is me who will change. Um, or we can sit over it in judgment. And um, whether that shows up as complete disinterest in what could I have to say to me, or whether that shows up as sneering contempt. And um, for those who sit in judgment over the Bible, there is the chilling possibility that over time, it will make less and less sense to them. As in fitting judgment, God conceals his word from scoffers. Ironically, people take that attitude to the Bible out of a desire to be found on the right side of history very often. And that's what the Bishop of Oxford was doing. He wanted to bend God's word until he could make it speak with the same voice as the culture of the day. But then it is no longer speaking with God's voice. And then you can no longer know where history is headed. God has announced history in advance. Our job is to listen and to trust. And you can ignore the voice of the scoffers. And they might be very clever, but they don't know what they're talking about. 
because God has concealed his word from them. But if the vast majority of Isaiah's hearers rejected his message, and some of the cleverest scholars and religious leaders of our day fail to understand God's word, and what hope is there for us? How can we be sure that we've got it right and that therefore we will fall on the right side of history? Well, Isaiah paints a picture of God doing something new. Uh, These are chapters suffused with hope. Isaiah's third and final point for this morning. God's spirit opens blind eyes to see the king. The salvation of 701 BC was kind of a one-off. Judah's king at the time, Hezekiah, was kind of a good king. I'm certainly better than his father Ahaz. When Hezekiah saw the Assyrians actually at the gates, he finally did the right thing in praying to the Lord for salvation. It was in answer to Hezekiah's prayer that the Lord acted to turn back the Assyrians. But that miracle had no lasting effects on the people of Jerusalem. They continued to distrust and disobey the Lord. And where Assyria failed, Babylon would soon succeed. They'd be headed off to exile in Babylon for their continued rebellion. Isaiah's vision of what the Lord will do reaches further forward in time than simply this one-off defeat of the Assyrians, spectacular as that was. Further as that was, um, his vision reaches beyond exile and return. And in common with the other prophets, he speaks of a day when the Lord himself will come as king to rule and his spirit will be poured out and all God's people will be able to understand and believe God's word because they will live in appropriate awe of him. Let me just read you a string of verses, quite a lot of them, from these chapters without comment. Look them up if you like, just listen if you prefer. Here is Isaiah's vision of the future. Chapter 29, verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Chapter 30, verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Chapter 32, verse 14. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Chapter 33, verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Chapter 33, verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. 
chapter 33, verse 24. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. These are promises that have come true for us. The Lord, the God of Israel, has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Our eyes have beheld the King in his beauty. Our eyes have seen our teacher. Through his death, he has forgiven our iniquity. Through his resurrection, he's given us a new life of peace and righteousness forever. Through his ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, he has opened our eyes and our ears so that we can understand his word. Bible-believing Christians can see the obvious truth about where history is headed, not because we're cleverer than Einstein or know more about the Bible than my theology lecturer, but because by his grace, God's Spirit has opened our eyes to see that Jesus is the Lord, the King. We stand in awe of the God of Israel, and therefore we are able to understand his word. How can we be sure that we're on the right side of history? There are really only two possible strategies. You can see the contrast between them in chapter 28. Um, Here's the first strategy for trying to end up on the right side of history. Strategy one, make an alliance with the world. Chapter 28, verse 14. And therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement, that's probably their alliance with Egypt, the nation obsessed with death. And when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we've made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we've taken shelter. And this is their plan. They're not going to die, because they've allied with Egypt. And perhaps that is your plan. Watch the news... Uh, Try to guess where the world is headed next. Constantly update your attitudes, opinions, ethics in order to ally yourself with the world. It's very risky. Yesterday's cultural heroes are today's cultural pariahs. Think of Jermaine Greer. Uh, We ought to draw the inference. Today's cultural heroes will be tomorrow's cultural pariahs. Every generation pulls down the statues their parents erected. What folly to ally yourself to an ever-changing world. There is a second strategy that is certain and solid that enables us to be sure that we will end up on the right side of history. Here's what the Lord was doing, even in Isaiah's day, chapter 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. That is, they won't be constantly running around looking for the next thing to put their trust in. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. And waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through. You will be beaten down by it. 
time in the first place, this foundation stone is probably the promise that the Lord will deliver the city of David and that the one who believes will not be in haste. On his promises, the Lord is building something solid in contrast to the flimsy shack of alliance with Egypt. Indeed, where alliance with Egypt was in fact a covenant with death, and God's promise sweeps away death. And the New Testament says that the fulfillment of those promises is found in the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be in haste or will not be put to shame. And Jesus, the fulfillment of all God's promises, is the solid foundation on which God is building an unshakable new temple to dwell in. And we can be a part of it by believing in him. You want to be a part of God's unchanging, certain, solid as a rock plan, and never worrying about whether your life will count for something or not. Trust Jesus. You want to be sure that you will be found on the right side of history. Build your life on the rock that is Jesus' words. Don't you think Jesus might have had Isaiah 28 in mind when he told the story of the wise and the foolish builders? Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, says Jesus, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds beat and blew on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can know where history is headed because you've announced it in advance. Please, by your spirit, would we stand in awe of you and build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus' words. For your glory we pray. Amen.